It's as easy as jumping out of a plane. It's the Your Life Lived Well podcast with Dr. Kevin Payne. Today, I am delighted to introduce all of you to one of the favorite people that I have met in the last few years. Dr. April Sievert is a remarkable person. Uh, she holds a doctorate in uh, social cognitive psychology. Uh, she is the co-founder of the of Peak Mind, uh, the Center for Psychological Strength. She's the host of the Building Psychological Strength podcast, and uh, she's busy. She's an entrepreneur. She's the wife of an ER physician, which is three jobs in itself. <laughs> <laughs> And she's the mother of two. And she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis at the tender age of 14. And she watched her father pass away from colon cancer at the age of 11. So chronic illness has affected her entire life. And she's chosen to use that experience and that education to help others build uh, resilience and confidence and live better lives. So without any further ado, uh, here's April. Welcome, Dr. Seifert. Thank you. I'm really, really excited about this. We've had this in the works for a little while, and I have been looking forward to it for weeks. So I'm really excited to be here. Me too. And April and I share some really funny coincidences in our lives that I'm sure we'll get into. But beyond what I've said, uh, tell us about yourself and, and what got you to this point. Oh man, that is the windiest path ever. You've given kind of the, the big whistle stops, right? Because there are, I would say there are some personal formative experiences that I had. The two major ones that you mentioned around um, going through cancer treatment and my dad's journey with cancer and ultimately my family's journey as we grieved him after he passed away um, very shortly after that. Uh, finding out that I have MS, which is, which you say it that way, right? I found out that I have MS as though it was a thing that happened to you one day, <laughs> but really it was a series of years of very weird symptoms and strange things that people had a difficult time finding out or figuring out and making sense of being very young at the time and grieving my dad's loss and people not taking that seriously that I was having these symptoms. Uh, we can get into all of that, but those two very formative personal experiences shaped my, say, worldview of how I think about what a real problem is and what uh, the importance of the way that we live life, what intention actually means when people say that they're living intentionally. Um, I really take that to the nth degree. So those personal formative experiences certainly were important. Um, important in shaping who I am. But then career-wise, one of the biggest, most amazing things that ever happened to me is I was laid off from a job right before the holidays when I was very pregnant with my first daughter. And I took that as an opportunity to just try, to just try to be an entrepreneur because I thought, well, what would I do if 
I quote unquote fail? What would I do if I can't support myself as an entrepreneur? Oh, okay. I'd go get a job. I'm like, so wait, if you go get a job now, you're conceding failure without even trying. Like if, if getting a job is what it means to fail as an entrepreneur, why don't you actually fail first? So that, exactly. yeah, that decision really then opened me up to have the flexibility and the ability to try a lot of different things with my career, which is how I've ultimately landed on the work that I'm doing now because I gave myself that space to, to try. So uh, tell our listeners, what is that work that you're doing right now? It may seem a little bit um, two sides of the coin, but it all really boils down to, I have a set of skills that I adore using. One of those um, sets of skills is just my expertise in the area of psychology. I absolutely love the field. I believe that the information, tools, and techniques from that field are life changing and so powerful. So I always rely on those skills. I'm also highly analytical by nature. Um, so that aspect of my background is evident in all of the work that I do. And I also really like to think strategically. So if you put all that together, my main, I would call it day job, or my primary business is a business called Sprocket. We do customer insight work where I do data science and uh, behavioral economic sort of work to help brands better resonate with their consumers. We work a lot in sports and enthusiast brands, in lifestyle, apparel categories, really fun brands, um, NFL teams, and other uh, fun brands like that. We get to do that work. And I do a lot of psychology and data science. So a lot of analytical work. And then my side work, as you mentioned, and the work that we'll call it a passion project that I just, I can't not do it is uh, Peak Mind, the Center for Psychological Strength. So I have a colleague from graduate school who's a clinical psychologist, licensed, takes patients. Both she and I truly believe that the field of psychology needs to be more accessible to people through ways other than just therapy and going to graduate school yourself. You should be able to access these tools and techniques and apply them to your life. And that's what we're trying to do is make them very accessible to people so that they can apply them to their own lives and experience life better. I mean, think about it. Like this is coming from a person who watched her father pass away and had major capabilities of mind, vision and movement and you name it, taken away over and over again. It is critically important for me and for everyone else to live their life intentionally. And I want to help them do that through this work that we're doing with Peak Mind. So both are like, loves of mine, Sprocket and Peak Mind are both loves of mine that I cannot put down, but they just coexist in the work that I do today. And that, dear listeners, is one of the major uh, coincidences that, that <laughs> we found uh, between us. Uh, my, you know, I, I have Chronic Cal, where we build analytics that help connect people with uh, the exact right behavioral change techniques that are going to work for them. Um, but I also am chief data scientist for a company called SickWeather, and we have analytics that predict flu and, you know, allergies, and, and we're unrolling some new analytics that are predicting coronavirus. And, and so uh, you and I share that, that analytic bent, and, mm -hmm. and so... That's coincidence number one. Um, 
keep going with with your story and and we'll we'll let this unfold for the listeners yeah so um it's funny you talk about these these coincidences so um can i talk about how we met yeah sure please do i it was just so funny because so as you mentioned i host this podcast building psychological strength and so i'm out on social media um, and out on the internet and i'm intentionally very easy to find on the internet because you want people to listen to your show so you make yourself very easy to find so all of a sudden one day I get this message through my website from this random person. And this happens, I, I'm not going to say like I get hundreds of messages a day, but it happens fairly frequently where I get messages from people and you never know who's going to be finding you on the internet, right? So there's always this, this uh, filter that I put people through when they first reach out to me. And I saw your message and here's this message from you. And you did everything right in that message to set yourself up as I'm a real person. I'm not crazy. I'm not going to do something nuts by reaching out to you. So you told me who you were. You told me why you were messaging. And then you left a series of links. Like, here's my website. Here's my podcast. Here's what I'm doing. I'm like, great. I can like vet this guy and check him out um, and make sure that I'm not responding to somebody totally crazy. But it was cool because the stuff that we shared in common is just uncanny. We talked about the data science part, which data science is a growing field. There's more people in the field now, but to have that in common along with um, also meeting somebody who has MS, which is not a common condition. Um, I think it's still in most insurance companies classified as a rare disease. Um, so that was really interesting. I'm like, oh, a data science person who has MS, this isn't super common. Um, who's also a licensed skydiver? which is really <laughs> hilarious because the combination of those things, I think you did the math on what the odds are that two people would share those three bullet points in common. It's really unlikely. And yeah, it was like a trillion to one or something. It was <laughs> yeah, so it was cool. I mean, we, I got this awesome message from you and we reached out and had an initial conversation and really bonded over, you know, you think about the, approach to life and the mindset that you cultivate when you have that set of things in common in particular. And um, you really find somebody who has the same zest and fervor for life um, when you share a background like that, or you can. I mean, I guess it's not necessarily guaranteed, but um, somebody who's been through those same experiences, who has both experienced what it's like to wake up one morning not having an ability that you had the day before and also what the experience of um opening an airplane door at altitude and intentionally moving toward the door what that's like uh, both of those are <laughs> door <laughs> both of those are very uh unique experiences that uh, really can bond to people so it was really fun hearing from you and getting to know you um just because of you know those couple of things alone yeah, I felt like I had met my twin sister from another mystery. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So on that note, uh, we will uh, take a quick break here and we'll come back and talk about parents and children and life with chronic illness. I'm Dr. Kevin Payne. Just jump with me into your life lived well. Half of us now live with chronic illness. 
Mine is multiple sclerosis. It's your life. Live it well. A chronic diagnosis doesn't mean goodbye to the good life you wanted. You don't have to feel overwhelmed or hopeless. I'll show you how to save yourself. Take your first step at justjump.life. And we're back with Dr. April Seifert and all of our amazing coincidences. And in this segment, you know, one of the differences between us is that you grew up with the presence of chronic illness. Mm -hmm. And in my case, I wasn't diagnosed until my 30s, although I think I was, uh, you know, symptomatic of MS probably, you know, from the time I was 20 or so but it was just weirdness about the edges and I dismissed it because I was a young guy and young guys are invincible, right? Of course. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I've also dealt with cancer with a parent, uh, but, you know, my mother was, was uh, you know, she was older and I was, you know, in my late 20s when that happened. And, and so for me, chronic illness, you know, I had a, this long normal life and then suddenly, bam, I got hit with that and, and, you know, I was diagnosed and my then wife was dying of cancer and, you know, I went, suddenly everything was all chronic illness all the time. You, you had to grow up with that. So I, I wanted you to, to kind of give, share some insights about being a child and an adolescent faced with those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mentioned it a little bit before. If you think back to the timing, and I was like you, from the point that I got my diagnosis, I had symptoms for quite a while before that. That's very common with MS mm -hmm. because it's not, um, it can be difficult to diagnose. It's not the most straightforward thing. Right. So I had symptoms for quite a while, but temporally, they began very soon after my dad passed away. So I was in the fifth grade when my dad passed away. I have photos of my sixth grade, quote, graduation, when you're not in elementary school anymore. I have photos of that graduation day where it looked like I had Bell's palsy. I was smiling with half of my face. And no one really noticed it, but I could definitely feel it. And I was noticing strange physiological things like, I was very sensitive to cold water. It would almost hurt or it was a nerve pain kind of feeling. And half of my body was going numb, like perfect line down my torso, half of my body would go numb or one leg would go numb. All of these very strange, the inside of my mouth went numb one time. Very, very strange symptoms. So my mom took me to the doctor and because of my age um, and because of the the closeness and time to when my dad passed away, the initial diagnosis that they essentially gave me, and it's, they didn't write this down, but this is how I characterize it, was a grieving hysterical girl. Like mm -hmm. clearly we have a young girl here who is grieving her father, she's attention seeking, and she is potentially psychosomatically or maybe completely inventing a set of symptoms to get attention. Um, unfortunately that wasn't what it was. And, uh, as that, that is freakishly common, with it is young people who present and women who present and it is, it is because at the time, and this is changing now, which is interesting, but at the time kids, my age do not get 
MS. Like there were not very many cases in the United States. So there weren't even really doctors to see you because there are no pediatric MS doctors. That's not a thing. Um, so yeah, it was really difficult to be taken seriously with the symptoms that I was presenting until the years went on, the symptoms grew. I started going blind and losing gross motor ability. I couldn't write, I couldn't walk. I was falling downstairs that my mom took me to the emergency department at our local hospital. And this is another one of those moments that seared into your mind that I'll never forget. The doctor, I was sitting on the table and I had my feet resting on the floor and the doctor said, lift your foot up. And so I, the, the foot that I was having a hard time with, and I, I lifted my whole leg up off the floor. He was like, nope, put your heel on the floor and lift your toes up. And I couldn't do it. The infamous foot drop. It never occurred to me that it was paralysis. It didn't occur to me because as a kid, and this is a unique thing, I think as, as a child, your mind doesn't go there. You're so focused on... I mean, think about how old I was. Think about how gangly and awkward and just mortified you are just to be 13 or 14, like in that age range. Mm -hmm. I, you're not thinking about things like this. It did not occur to me until that moment. Um, within 48 hours, I had my first brain scan and there was an enormous lesion on it that we didn't know what was causing it. So our world completely flipped upside down in a matter of days when it went from this girl is attention seeking to, wow, this is very serious. She might have brain cancer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, that foot drop is, is such a common a symptom for those of us with MS. Sometimes my right foot does it. And one of the things that I found is if I don't watch out when I'm having trouble with my right foot, it sticks out like a fin in free fall. And, mm, and you start turning. <laughs> I have to really work on it. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so, so what was it like to not be taken seriously by the medical system for so long and then to finally be taken seriously? it's really sad. Nobody's ever asked me that, but it's really sad when I think back to it because now I have daughters and I think about how they might feel. Mm -hmm. I internalized it. I started to believe them. So I left those appointments and I went home and I always noticed it when I was in the bath because you turn the bath water on and it's cold right away. And I would like, I would like jump away from it because it was painful. I was sensitive to it. And then when I would lay in the bath, the bath was warm, right? And half of my body, I could feel it. And the other half, I couldn't. Mm -hmm. And I laid in the bath that day and I'm like, I can't believe I'm making this up. Like, this is amazing that I am inventing. I believed them. I internalized it. And the ability the self-doubt that that causes is really powerful when somebody doesn't, and in, this is across the board, in any capacity, when you are speaking the truth of what you are experiencing and someone doesn't believe you, the doubt that that throws in your mind, especially around a situation where you don't even understand what's going on right? I didn't, I did, it's not like I walked in there and I said, I have MS. Could you go ahead and diagnose me? I didn't know what was happening. Yeah. So, um, 
the doubt that it caused was really powerful. And then when they finally told me, um, you have to understand that my diagnostic process, they were not looking for MS at first because kids don't get it. They looked for Lyme disease. They looked for viruses. They looked for brain cancer. Um, a number of things, the number of tests I had is astounding. And finally, one physician that we begged to take my case redid everything, a new spinal tap, new imaging, new everything. And he said, I can't give you, he said, everything that I'm seeing from you looks like MS. I can't get a definitive diagnosis. We're going to treat you as though you have MS and we're going to see if you get better. And that's how we're going to determine whether that's what it is. And in that moment, it was so much relief because number one, he was telling me, this is not brain cancer, which is great. I, you know, something we haven't talked about. I, my mom actually remarried after my dad passed away and my stepfather passed away from glioblastoma. The brain cancer is brutal, right? It wasn't that. So there was relief there, but there was also something beautiful and settling comes from having a plan. And that physician gave me the gift of having a plan. You're going to take this medication and we're going to see what happens. And that was the first time I had even two steps of a plan in front of me for so long. So both gratitude and great. We have a, we have a plan. I feel certain for the first time in a long time. Well, I think a lot of people who haven't gone through this uh, don't realize that, yeah, getting a diagnosis like you've got MS is, is scary, but mm -hmm. it's also comforting in a way because you've got a name and that name yes. comes with recognition and it comes with a process that you can follow. And it comes with, it's not these other things. Right. So you can put the running list of things that you've been milling over in your mind. You can take all of them except for one off the list. Right. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. In my diagnostic case, it, it took a while. And, and at one point, my neurologist had even said, well, you can be uh, glad that it's not a mess. <laughs> and then we did some more tests. And, whoops, and, just kidding. You know, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Um, you know, uh, that's what it is. So, in the next segment, I want us to, to uh, kind of go through some of those more life stages more and talk about how they happen. But before we tie up this segment, uh, you know, we have a lot of listeners who have chronic conditions and are also parents. Mm -hmm. So how has life with MS affected the way you approach parenting? Mm -hmm. A couple of ways. I think about now, obviously, this is something that the genetic predisposition for it, I could have passed to my daughters. I thought about that a lot before becoming a parent. Mm -hmm. And so that was definitely a piece of it. I think about them and keeping them healthy. MS is an autoimmune condition. That means what do you do to keep your immune system calm and healthy? Sleep, drink water, eat well, exercise basic things, wash your hands, like basic things, right? I'm really thoughtful about that. We're very thoughtful about our kids' diet and getting them great foods, um, even though they are in that quote-unquote picky eater stage. 
We work really, really, really hard. It's one of the things that I'm like, I'll fight that fight every day. I don't care. I'll fight it every day. But then for me, the other things that I think about, um, I will not say that I've been perfect at this, but where my mindset has landed, and my kids are young, so I'm like, I'm sort of a newbie parent. I have a four-year-old and I have an almost two-year-old. Yeah, but where I've, <laughs> I'm not ready for that yet. <laughs> but where I've landed is these years can be rugged. They're very taxing. As you mentioned, my husband is an emergency department physician, so his schedule is very crazy. Um, it is critically important. Like I'm a very important person to those kids. I'm a very important person to my family. When my husband can't be here for a shift, it's me. I have them by myself a lot. Taking care of myself is critically and principally important. Getting workouts in, making sure that I'm drinking water, making sure that I'm getting meals. All of those things that we worry about for everyone else first, none of that happens if you are sick. None of that happens if you can't take care of yourself. And so I've gone through the ups and downs of that, right? I've done the mom guilt thing that so many people talk about and it resonates with so many people because it's real. I've been there. I've been the person who's put myself last and I've suffered for it. And the place where I've landed is you have to be okay for you to be here for anybody else. So take care of yourself, like principally and foremost. And that's kind of where I've landed as a parent. Yeah, I had to learn those lessons the hard way too. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take a quick break here and, and come back and continue this discussion. We all have challenges. Mine is multiple sclerosis. We each have this one life. And we didn't choose to be saddled with chronic illness. But there's a better way. So I choose to just jump, and you can too. It's your life. Live it well. Justjump.life And we're back in Dr. April Seifert. I want to dig back into uh, your past and, and about these stages of growing up with a chronic illness and so so now you've you've had all these wacky neurological symptoms but you finally have a name for it just in time to be getting into high school and college <laughs> and, and so what was that like you know obviously my experience as a high school student was a bit different then i had some hospital stays filled with uh steroids and all that sort of fun stuff Ooh. i <laughs> i desperately wanted to play sports with my friends but um i played volleyball until literally the moment that i couldn't walk anymore and i had to sort of hobble off the court my coaches were amazing and allowed me to keep playing um, i discovered the game of golf because for whatever reason a lot of my big exacerbations happened during the winter and you don't play golf in the winter. So I could competitively play a sport that mostly didn't intersect with the time frame that I was typically really sick. And um, you had a lot of cold sensitivity. I did. Yeah. 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 Um, Christmas was always really dodgy. Like, are we going to be in the hospital for Christmas? Or are we going to be home? Like, do we bring the tree to the hospital? What do we do? Um, 
as I got into college, I was very fortunate. I, um, I joined a sorority, which was one of the most supportive groups of women in this regard. We, uh, I, I don't know if we still hold it, but we had the record for how much money we raised for the MS walk one year. They just took it upon themselves to make buttons with my face on it and all these crazy oh. things. Super supportive. But it was finally, I am, I am. Uh, But think about the timeline, right? I was diagnosed when I was 14 or so. It wasn't until I was about 21 before things really started to calm down. So I had been on interferon for seven years at that point. um, And it took that long for things to start to stabilize out and for me to not get more than annual big exacerbations. So for people who might be new to the chronic illness game, I'll say, give it a minute. Don't assume that where you're at today as a newly diagnosed person and the experience you're having is what it's going to be like years from now. I don't know what your journey might be, but for me, things started to calm down as my body absorbed that interferon and you know it started to do its job, which can take a while. After that, I made the decision to go to graduate school because I loved psychology. And, you know, I keep going back to these pivotal moments in my life when um, it's like seeing the matrix, right? After you see it, you can never go back. Like, it, <laughs> like life, you've closed a door. You will never go back to that place again. And graduate school was another one of those times. I can't explain why it happened. But one day, I'm in grad school. I'm doing like I'm doing all the things, right? That everybody that I on paper it looks like I would want to do. I'm getting my PhD. I'm this, you know, person who looks like they're very successful on the outside. Um, MS is largely under control at that point. I'm not really having exacerbations. It's amazing. And I was sitting at my desk and I was writing this research paper and I had all these articles all around me and I started thinking about the list of things that other people didn't even realize that I had. And on this list were things like, I want to be a public speaker. I want to try to run a marathon and other things like that, that were, that I knew at the moment were impossible. And for some reason that I cannot even describe, I started thinking about my dad and I started thinking about myself as that blind junior high girl who couldn't walk. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about the reasons why I wasn't trying to run a marathon. I'm like, well, you're going to fail. You're not going to be able to do it. Like you're, you're not going to, you can, you can't run 26 miles. Like you can't. Um, and I thought about, well, why was I afraid of failing? Well, I'm afraid of failing because other people will judge me and other people will see that I've done something imperfectly or that I had to say I was going to do something and then stop, like I quit. And in my mind, again, I thought about my dad and I thought about myself and it hit me in the face stronger than I can describe. I thought, what would my dad give or what would you give when you were sick? What would you give? And I choke up every time I think about it. What would you give for the day that you're wasting today? You are wasting your day. You, who it used to be laborious for you to walk from here 10 feet across the room to go to the bathroom. You, who that was difficult, who can now walk completely fine and run completely fine. You're going to say, 
you can't try to run a marathon. And your dad, who has no time left to try anything. What do you think those people would say to you today about your little fears about other people thinking maybe you didn't do something perfectly? And it was like my brain broke at that point. Things changed, a door closed, that it was like, nope, you don't do that anymore. You don't worry about whether you're going to do it perfectly anymore. You don't worry about as much. Not, I'm not perfect, but you don't worry as much about what other people think anymore to the point that they will stop you from trying the things that you want to try. At that point, life became urgent to me. You don't know as a person with MS, I could wake up tomorrow blind again. I could wake up tomorrow paralyzed again. Did you do today what you should have done today when you can see and move? Did you? And I started asking myself the hard questions and was disappointed in myself with the answers. And I think a lot of us might be that way, but we don't have to be. No, we don't. And save us from well-intentioned limiters. Right. There, there are those people out there who are, are like, oh, back off, ease off, don't do it. You know, I, I, I will turn to those people and say, do you want to live the life that you're advising me to live? That usually shuts them up. Well, and, you know, I'll say the same thing that I said about don't judge what 10 years from now might look like with your chronic condition by how they are today. When you start, let's say that everybody has this epiphany, right? Like, let's say I've punched you in the face sufficiently that you've realized like you need to get up and go do some things, which I hope that's happened for at least a few people listening. Let's say that has happened and tomorrow you go out and do something that seems quote unquote crazy or risky or whatever. And other people are looking at you and they're like, what are you doing? Or your own brain is asking you, what are you doing? Do not judge how loud those voices will be eventually by how loud they are today. Because eventually, everyone will catch on that it doesn't matter. You're going to keep going anyway, and they'll stop. Your own mind will stop. Eventually, you in your mind and people outside will catch on that, nope, this is just how April lives now. And it's just not worth their breath and they'll stop. And then things get a lot easier because then you can do whatever you want. Well, they do. And, and, you know, speaking of that, one thing I've never asked you, how did you make the decision to start skydiving? Because I thought it was really expensive. And then I looked it up one day finally and I realized it was only $200. And I was like, dude, I'm doing this this weekend. Like, <laughs> that's crazy. I mean, I, it was something that I had always wanted to try. And I just chalked it up with this must be like $1,000. That must be how much this costs. <laughs> I just was so dumb. I had never looked it up. So yeah, I just realized it wasn't that expensive and just decided I wanted to try it once. And then once you get your license, you know, 25 buck jump tickets. I, mean, I know it's super no? cheap. Yeah. Well, what was interesting about it is what I realized, and this is for anybody who's thinking about doing it. I'm actually really good at convincing people. So if you think you want to, I'm the person to talk to. If you don't want to be convinced, I wouldn't talk to me, right. but um, everybody has their preconceived notions of what a skydive will feel like. <laughs> like, what is it going to feel like when I do it? The fear is real. That's accurate you're probably actually downplaying it. Even if you think you're going to be terrified, you've never felt that terrified in your life. It's awesome. <laughs> it is. But two, um, everyone thinks that it's going to feel like a roller coaster and that it's going to be like your stomach's going to drop. And it doesn't. No. Like that isn't what it feels like. It feels like the most 
supported your body has ever felt from the air blowing on you. Like it's the most cushiony supported. You feel, you think you're going to see the ground rushing up toward you and uh, it's so scary. No, you literally just sit there. Nothing happens. And it's the prettiest view of the world you've ever seen. So that too, like I did my first jump and I realized like my preconceived notions of what this is were completely wrong. All the things I was afraid of were the total wrong things to be afraid of. None of the things that I thought I was going to be thinking, feeling, experiencing were right. The fear that would have hold, held me back was a fear of a thing that it isn't even like. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I had had a long break in there. I'd, I'd started years ago and, and my, my skydiver resurrection award number is over 8,000. Um, so it's way too long, but you know, when I went back last year to, to really, you know, seriously do this, that was May 4th of last year. And since then I've, I've, I've been hitting it great guns. I've, I've got 179 jumps in. Um, so I'm, I'm knocking on my C license here and nice Wednesday, I, I did this jump. It was a free fly jump with a friend and for 3000 feet, just did a repeated series of layouts Mm -hmm. all the way down. (laughs) And you're right. I mean, it's this beautiful, freeing, supportive feeling. Mm -hmm. And, and then, you know, it was at sunset. So then, you know, Oh, that's awesome. Pop the canopy high and just sat there for, uh, you know, and, and enjoyed the, the slow ride down with the beautiful sunset. And, you know, I don't care if people jump out of planes. I mean, I, I suggest they do if they think they want to, but I suggest that people at least try the thing that they think would bring them joy and that they they may have their illness getting in the way of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. And I'd add to that too. Uh, you can put yourself in situations that are, I would say uncommon where people would look at you and say, you're so lucky. When the only thing that is standing between you being lucky in that situation and someone who's not is they just didn't decide to put themselves in that situation. So uh, very concretely for me, for skydive, one of my favorite places to be, I don't know why, I'm, I hate the plane ride up. Terrifying. It just mm-hmm. scares me still. I don't like planes. It scares me. Well, door you, opens. Door a perfectly good airplane. No, I don't know what it is. And like airplane or skydive airplanes are really janky and like, oh, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> and the pilots think they're funny and like, they're not funny and you're freaking out. The door yeah, opens. You have a really funny pilot. <laughs> the door opens and if anybody's seen the the show Moana there's a little chicken on the boat who realizes he's in the middle of the ocean and can't see land and he just loses it that's what my brain does my brain goes hey hey when the door opens but what's beautiful is i love the moment that i've climbed out i love just sitting there for a second mm-hmm. because something happens when you've decided you're going to jump and you're in the door and it's eminent, your brain goes as present and as mindful as a Buddhist who has meditated for 60 years. Like you cannot possibly physically be anywhere other than in the moment. And I remember sitting like my third jump 
in the door. And by that time I could like be more present and like awake for it. You're not like freaking out. And I remember thinking, I feel so lucky. How many people in the world right now are sitting outside of an aircraft moving through the sky? This is amazing. It is. I mean, what could be cooler than hanging off the side of an airplane going 100 miles an hour through the sky? Yes. And and just, wow. You just get to sit there for a minute. Yeah. That's why I love jumping in the Cessna because there's almost nobody in it. And so it's not like you're just like, go, 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 go. We're going to miss the drop zone. We're not getting back. You don't have to jump out so fast. There's like two of you that need to get out and it's not going that fast anyway. And you can just like hang there on the wing for a second. Well, you know, you are the only other active jumper with MS that I know. So I'm just going to put this out on the podcast. If anybody else knows somebody who is is a real, honest-to-goodness active jumper with multiple sclerosis, drop me a line, man, because I want to know. I, uh, and I want to get us all together on a, on a collective jump sometime. <laughs> On that note, we'll take a break and we'll come back and and tie this up with some practical things that people can take away with them. I'm Dr. Kevin Payne. Just jump with me into your life lived well. Half of us now live with chronic illness. Mine is multiple sclerosis. It's your life. Live it well. A chronic diagnosis doesn't mean goodbye to the good life you wanted. You don't have to feel overwhelmed or hopeless. I'll show you how to save yourself. Take your first step at justjump.life. So during that break, I had a chance to just like meditate on the Zen of of, of floating through the (laughs) atmosphere there. And you know, I was, I really am spoiled because I, I live 10 minutes from my drop zone and and we've actually had pretty good weather for a March here. So I was up on Tuesday, I was up on Wednesday and I'm going back today after we get out of the studio. Um, but I'll talk fast. <laughs> no, it's all right, I, I'm enjoying this. Uh, but you know, the, one of the things that I most appreciated and respected about you when we met was you were a kindred spirit in that sense that that we shared this I'll just screw it and jump attitude toward fear and and people say it mm-hmm. you know in that dismissive way but it's 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 not an easy thing it's something that you have to keep working at and mm-hmm. and you know I know for me with my MS the most terrified I ever was was not when my legs won't work or when I can't feel my body or those other things, it was when I had a really massive cognitive exacerbation. Mm. And that just terrified the hell out of me because I didn't know if I was going to come back, you know, because with MS, if it's relapsing, mm-hmm. remitting, you always wonder whenever you have a relapse, is this going to be the one that doesn't remit? Right. And, and so you have a beautiful attitude toward fear, and I want you to share that with uh, our listeners. Yeah, uh, I, I'm really passionate about this topic. The first thing that I want everybody to know is, uh, you know, you mentioned there's 
there's sort of the surface level, like, ah, oh, screw it and jump, like, ah, da, 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 da. This flippant attitude that people can have toward it. That is not what's happening under the surface. So for people out there, like, I could never, yes, you could, uh, but you need to do the deeper work to get to the point where you can utter that sentence authentically. And one of the places that I would urge people to start is to understand what fear is and understand what it is not. Let's do a quick uh, walkthrough of the brain and historically. Um, historically, things that are uh, our one of our brain's biggest jobs is to keep us alive and do it while expending the least amount of energy possible. So keep us alive and don't work too hard to do it. So if you take that in mind um, and then trace ourselves back to as organisms were beginning to evolve and become slightly intelligent, the first thing to evolve is the brainstem because it keeps your heart beating, right? That's a pretty vital thing to keep you alive. Now, if it's something that is very vital to keeping us alive, there's a couple of characteristics that that uh, function has. So again, it, um, it is absolutely critical. It happens outside of our awareness. It is not something that we can interfere with very easily. Um, and it was old. So it evolved a long time ago, and it's something that's ready to go out of the gate when we're born. So newborn babies have a brainstem, their heart beats automatically, it's ready to go day one, healthy babies. Um, and this is something that involved in our brains as, as, I'm not talking even just humans, I'm talking just like animals on the earth a long time ago. The second thing we got was like our limbic, like the amygdala and midbrain and all of that. Now think about this. It is also evolutionarily old, 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 like very old. It is almost out of our control. We can control that slightly more than we can control our heart beating. We can't do that at all, but it is slightly more in our control. It is available to us immediately. Day one, you can scare a baby, right? They will cry at a loud noise. You can scare a baby. Um, and so think about how critical that is to keeping us alive that it was it evolved so quickly after our heart beating it's like great we're here now let's look for predators now let's look for threats i say this because what i want people to understand is there is nothing wrong with you you are not deficient you are not different you are not weak you are not anything other than what you know we are on this call right now on this podcast right now you are the same because you're a human with a brain that is functioning the way that it was it evolved to function it evolved to keep you alive that's what fear is fear is an evolutionarily adaptive mechanism to keep you safe and alive however that part of your brain evolved to have its function and its form at a time when we were under mortal threat two dozen times a day, right? right? Always, always, always. There were predators everywhere. There was illness everywhere. There was um, threat and of bodily harm everywhere. And so that part of our brain is very reactive and it's constantly on and it finds what it's looking for. It's really, really good at it because it evolved in a time that looks nothing like today. So that old part of our brain is still doing its old job in an environment where comparatively we have no threats. Now, take, uh, we're recording this during the coronavirus uh, 
escalation. So take that off. But in general, we don't have, there are no predators that are threatening to burst into the room right now and kill me. There just aren't. That mechanism is still doing its thing though, because it doesn't know any better. So when you approach something new, like skydive, like public speaking, like any of these things that we have today, it's going to kick in and do its job. And it's going to squeeze out the only chemicals that it knows how to squeeze out, which are the same chemicals that it squeezed out when we had mortal threats and enemies chasing us all day long. So I say all of that boring historical stuff because I want you to understand the fear that you're feeling is real. The signal that it's sending you is likely not accurate. It is likely an overblown response to the situation that you're in because it's responding in the only way it knows how, the way it evolved to respond back when it was responding to stimuli that actually were really threatening. And just for the listener here, I'm over here nodding my head, you know, saying, preach, sister, because, <laughs> because that is so crucial. And by the way, you're going to love chapter three of my book. Yay. Because <laughs> that's what this is all about. And it, it is so crucial that we understand that every time our bodies give us one of those symptoms, that's a threat. Mm -hmm. and, and we perceive it as a threat. Mm -hmm. It's not the same kind of threat as a velociraptor running through the, the brush after you. Right. And, but that's the only tool that our primitive brain has. Right. And it runs off of, let's get even more nerdy. Oh, the yeah, more, please. yes, the more automatic or involuntary something is, heartbeats, uh, subconscious thought processes, this kind of stuff that we're talking about here. Um, the more heuristic it is. So a cue happens and it runs. A cue happens and it runs. It's really, that's why it's tough to interfere in it. Um, you can change those cues. Let me give you a very concrete example that is not skydive. I've had two children. I've had two children. Um, both of them were birthed vaginally, which means I went through labors two times. Labor doesn't feel good. Labor hurts. Your body is wired to be afraid when something hurts that bad. Because typically, pain of that caliber means something is very wrong and you get a fear response, which doesn't help your situation. Something that women who are approaching having to go through labor or anyone who gets afraid can work on is divorcing the prime or the trigger with the emotion that it causes. And you do that by inserting new thoughts in between there. So let me go back to labor things start to hurt. And what typically happens is you don't execute an intentional response to that pain. You don't start talking to yourself saying, okay, this hurts because this is labor. Labor is a natural, healthy process. I'm not in danger. Yes, it does hurt, but pain is not the same as danger. You're not intentionally talking to yourself and giving yourself new input. What people typically do is experience the pain and freak out immediately. Now, you have to do that when you're not in the situation, like NBA players don't learn how to shoot free throws in the NBA finals. They do it in practice when they're not in a high pressure situation. What I would urge people to do is, again, think about what fear is. It is a very real feeling whose signal is probably not accurate. You need to talk to yourself about what that signal is. I'm feeling a lot of pain right now. This does not mean that I'm not safe. 
I am feeling pain. I am absolutely safe. I'm feeling pain. I'm absolutely safe. I had two labors that were both painful. I felt safe the entire time. There was no panic involved with either of them. Pain, yes. Crying, yep. Lots of other stuff, not panic. And panic is where we get out of control and can no longer make great decisions for ourselves. So if you want to go forward and do something in the face of fear, you need to get really good at using your frontal lobe, which was the like prefrontal cortex, last thing to develop. It is not involuntary. It takes lots of effort. It takes lots of you know, intention. You have to work at it, but get it in the game. You have to decide that it's going to be in the game with you. And if it is, start to inch. This is why like exposure therapy works. Get yourself in the situation where you're slightly experiencing the thing that causes you fear and start intentionally talking to yourself. Hey, I'm noticing that I'm feeling really afraid right now, but as I look around, you know what? No one's laughing at me, public speaking. Not a single person is. I know I'm afraid that they might, but they aren't. No one is right now. Isn't that interesting? Start intentionally giving yourself new input. And the more you do that, you will weaken the link between that trigger and the strength of that fear response or the hold that it takes over you. It takes time. It's not going to be immediate. You're still going to feel the fear, but you're going to get a gap in between the fear and the point at which you panic to the point where you can probably execute the thing you need to do before you panic. And that's where skydive comes in, right? Like at some point, you can get yourself out the door before you panic. And then from there, it's like all gravy, like you're fine at that point. Yeah. I mean, it's like now it's like uh, doors open. It's like, don't even think about it. You just yeah. out the door with everybody else. Because your gap in between the trigger and the panic is so big that the panic is so far away, but it wasn't like that in the beginning. Yeah. You have to wedge that gap open by talking to yourself intentionally. Get the frontal lobe in the game because the amygdala is going to do it. It's going to be pumping its stuff out because it doesn't have any other job. Like that's the only thing it knows how to do. It's going to do it and let it happen, but you need to get those other tools that are inside of your control in the game with it to start to reduce, you're gonna feel the fear, but what it means to you, what the meaning you're assigning with it is gonna be more in line with the actual threat you're experiencing, which probably isn't that big. Yeah, I keep, I keep uh, uh, reminding people that we will perform as we practice. Mm -hmm. And if we, if we don't, have that practice where, you know, as you say, you're, you're beginning to practice inserting that intentionality yep. and you're, you're hosed whenever it comes to the real performance. And I'm yep. also, I'm also reflecting on the experience of having the really easy dad job in the, in the labor room. <laughs> <laughs> I will say though, uh, those were two of the best experiences of my life. And if I could deliver babies as my job, like physically be the person who pushes them out hundred percent, I do it all day long. It was wow. just like, I'm an endurance athlete though at heart. And I just loved it. But, um, part of what helped me do that was this process. I spent months, especially before my first labor, um, doing this work when I was not in the labor and delivery room, um, re like this is neuroplasticity at its, at its core. You're laying down new tracks. You're teaching your brain how to operate at peak mind. I'm just going to like say something really quick at peak mind. We say your brain, your mind can be your most valuable asset or your biggest liability. And you get to choose. The reason why we say that is if you leave your mind, your brain to its own devices, if you let the amygdala do what it does unchecked, it's going to be a big barrier for you. It's going to be a big liability for you. 
you get to choose to make it a valuable asset by doing this work and guiding it gently in the direction that you want it to go. Because most of our brain was formed in a time that looks nothing like today. And if you have to do that work, it again, does not mean that you are weak or deficient or somehow crazy or lack something or have too much of something else or are too anxious or too blah, 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 blah. It just means you're a human with a brain that is acting the way that it evolved to act. And you get to pick how you guide it from this point forward. Fast? No. Worth it? Definitely. Well, and everyone has to, to remember that humans, we have to learn everything. Mm -hmm. And that means that we have to learn being human well. Mm -hmm. And, and we don't, we, we, we presume that, oh, I'm, I'm a person. I know how to do these things. Well, look around you. I mean, half of all people are below average and that's not a lot to write home about. So evidently mm -hmm. we can all have a little more work in that area. Yep. Absolutely. So as we're wrapping this up, I, I, you know, just want to say, I mean, this is this right here, this inserting this intentionality in between the trigger and the response, like the fear response is getting in the way. That's a huge takeaway for everybody here that's dealing with chronic illness. So are there any other little tidbits that you want to make sure people walk away with? Yeah. So um, I'm kind of going to, this is what I talk about when I say like, my God, the field of psychology is so incredible and people don't get this information unless they like go to therapy or grad school. What you're, we're talking about right here is the basics of cognitive behavioral therapy. It's right. like there's a trigger and there's some emotions and there's some thoughts that happen in between there. The other piece that I would love to dive just a little bit into, we've talked about fear and emotions and the fact that they are real in terms of how we experience them, but they are not necessarily accurate. The same thing goes for every thought that you have in a day. Your brain's other job or your mind's other job, like the brain is the thing that creates your mind, right? Yeah, I always your say mind's mind is what brains do, like yeah, they're what bodies do. Exactly. So your mind's other job is to create these thoughts. And if you sit quietly, you will notice that your I'm reading a book right now that explained it really beautifully. It's called The Untethered Soul, A Journey Beyond Yourself. It's like if psychology and Buddhism had a baby, it would be this book. Oh, and they awesome. talk about it as though, <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Um, they would talk about it as though you have a roommate, like the most annoying roommate ever inside your brain. They have something to say about everything. They have an opinion about everything. And if you get quiet and you listen, you will hear that voice because every single one of us has it. And it's about absolutely everything. Did you eat rice checks this morning? Remember that time we had rice checks and then grandma made that rice checks thing and it had that seasoning on it that did that, did that. Like you'll go down a million rabbit holes a day. Those thoughts in the process, in the, in the realm of what we were just talking about, your abilities as a person, what you can and can't do, what people like you should and shouldn't do, all of those things that can be limiting, those thoughts will happen. They will happen automatically as a result of a trigger, right? You think about um, speaking your mind in an important meeting. Oh, people like me don't do stuff like that. Like, oh man, I could never. The trigger was thinking about putting yourself in a situation that is scary. The thoughts that come up are just automatic ingrained thoughts that have just learned to be habitual. It's just the track your mind runs on right now. You don't have to believe them. And you can insert other thoughts using that front part of your mind, 
the front part of your brain, you can intentionally put a different thought in there. I'm going to have to have this bold conversation in this meeting. I know I am perfectly capable of doing that. Now, here's the, kid, here's the clincher. And this is what I really want your audience to take away. It's going to feel fake at first. It's going to feel like that automatic thought that happened. Oh God, people like me don't do things like that. That thought has just been practiced more. That doesn't mean that thought is more authentic or accurate than the thought that you are manufacturing and putting in its place. In fact, if you continue to put that manufactured deliberative thought in place of the one that runs automatically, soon that one will run automatically. None of this is authentic to who you are. You are the core inside of you that is the absence of all of these thoughts, that is the absence of all of the crazy that your mind puts on top of you. You are just that core person who is aware of everything that your mind is doing. That is the pure human inside you. That's what's authentic. The thoughts are just stuff that's happening on the surface and you get to decide what those are and how helpful they are and pick helpful ones. So again, emotions like experience them. They may or may not be accurate thoughts, choose them. They may or may not be accurate. And that's really breaking down cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, like all the stuff that you would go to a therapist for, that's what they're going to be working off of. And please don't take this as therapy. This is not. And don't take this as me saying you shouldn't go because I've gone and it's amazing. But sure. like you can use it in your day-to-day -day life outside of therapy to help you with basic things like having a difficult conversation with your spouse or jumping out of a plane. It's all the same. It can help you live better. So just keep that in mind. Thoughts and feelings, they are real. They are there. They're not always helpful or accurate, and you can influence both of them. And that, I think, is a great takeaway for anybody, but especially for those of us who are living with a lot of our, our mental and emotional bandwidth sometimes being taken up by the challenges of chronic illness. And, and we want to figure out ways to put them in our place you know, in their places and, and make more room in our life for the things that we value most. And so uh, to that end, I, I want to uh, really thank April for giving of her time here. And I want to encourage our listeners to visit Peak Mind, uh, the Center for Psychological Strength, and to listen in on Dr. Seifert's own podcast uh, and and there will be links in the show notes for these things. So thank you once more, April and Blue Skies. Thank you so much. It was so great to be here. It was a great conversation and so much love to your audience. If you've enjoyed today's topic and want to join the conversation with Dr. Kevin Payne, find Your Life Lived Well on all of your favorite social media sites, Patreon, and of course, yourlifelivedwell.co.